As a pastor who can oftentimes be insecure and uh, untrusting, uh, one of the worst things people can say to me, and I don't mean this in any negative way if you've ever said this to me, is, Pastor, we need to talk sometime. Uh, when, I, when I hear that, my mind immediately begins to go crazy thinking, what do they need to talk to me about? Is it a problem with me? Is it a problem with them? Is it a problem with somebody else? Because I cannot control my imagination sometimes. Uh, some of you may be similar. Can I get an amen if that's you when people say, can we talk sometimes? Yes, I see a few at least heads nodding out there. Or imagine it's your spouse or friend. They text you 10 a.m. in the morning, say, I, I just have to tell you what happened to me this morning. We'll talk later. Uh, how many of you is that going to drive you nuts, wondering, is this, is this a good thing? Is this a, a bad thing? You can't tell by the nature of the talk. Well, last week, we covered Daniel chapter 10. And the whole chapter of chapter 10 builds some serious anticipation towards the final vision that Daniel is to receive. He'd been fasting for three weeks. That's a lot of anticipation. The angels were fighting uh, in order for him to even receive this. And so there's a good deal of anticipation. And Daniel was so weak that he couldn't stand, and then so weak that he couldn't speak, and then finally he was able to have the strength just so the messenger could speak to him. And right then we prayed and we dismissed and we went home, leaving you hanging on Daniel 11, verse 1. Well, today we finally get to dive into the final vision of Daniel, at least the first portion of it. We'll cover the, the last chapter, Daniel 12, uh, right after the Christmas holiday, right before the new year. But chapter 11 opens by pointing our attention to the Persian Empire. Uh, Daniel's current situation, remember he is now in the Persian Empire. The Babylonians who had taken the Jews captive and brought them back to Babylon had been overcome by the Persians. And so this is the context of Daniel. But quickly in Daniel 11 we move on to discuss the Greek Empire. And then almost as quickly we move on from the splintering of the Greek Empire and zooming in on on this one particular king, Antiochus, once again. And then I believe we enter into a bit of a wormhole and we come out on the other side shortly before the return of Jesus. And so as you can tell, uh, that's a lot of ground to cover as we think about all of the history and then all of the future. And so I want to begin verse 2. The bear that is Persia. Verse 2 says, Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he will stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Who is this rich king in this empire? Most agree that this fourth king beyond Cyrus, the current king, is Xerxes. Xerxes would be the king from 485 to 465. This is the same king who would marry Esther. To put it in other biblical contexts for you, history shows that he kicked up a hornet's nest provoking the growing Greek empire, and that would eventually be his demise. So the bear that is Persia already passes. Let's talk about the leopard with wings and four heads that is Greece, verses 3 and 4. Uh, leading that growing Greek empire is none other than Alexander the Great, whom we've already discussed with some of the previous visions. But notice verse 3. It refers to him as a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominance and do as he wills. That sounds very much like Alexander the Great and what we know. 
And and as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of the heaven, but not to his posterity, not according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Alexander was only 32 years old when he died. As soon as his power had reached its pinnacle, he vanishes off the scene as this describes. His kingdom was divided into how many sections? Four sections. We've already covered that in some of the previous. The four generals representing the four winds of what are being described here. Narrowing in further, the prophecy now focuses on two of the four heads that are the kings of the south and the kings of the north in the Greek empire. See, the next 15 verses, verses 5 through 20, which we're not going to take the time to read, but I'm going to point you to this source in just a moment. They describe the chaos that ensues following the death of Alexander. When you have an authoritarian leader like Alexander, it's hard to fill those shoes. We've seen that throughout empires in the world, and so his empire becomes splintered, and it becomes quite chaotic, and there are many wars that would be fought back and forth many treaties that would be made and treaties that would be broken. And rather than walking through all of those verses line by line, I've included this helpful chart. If you just want to pull it out and take a quick look at it, some of you have been reading it instead of listening to me anyway, and that's okay. Uh, But this walks through the the passage, and you can see the historical markings. Again, this is not original with me. I I stole this as I stole our previous uh, chart a couple weeks ago from Joe Sprinkle's commentary. But it helps us to put this in perspective as you work through the verses and you see how history unfolds. When liberal scholars look at something like this, they say this, Daniel couldn't have been written before these things happened. Daniel had to have been written after these things happened. Why do they say that? Because they don't believe in God and they don't believe in the supernatural and they don't believe in real prophecy. But we understand Daniel is prophesying these events hundreds of years prior to the way Things would unfold in history. God's Word is accurate. This is a faith-building exercise as you consider God's Word and these truths. You'll recognize some of the names as you move through the history. If you go a few lines down, you'll, you'll see uh, a word, uh, a name, Cleopatra. Now, now, I'm not a historian to know all of the history of Egypt, but I know Cleopatra, the queen of the Nile, right? I mean, that's, that's a popular name, Cleopatra is the sister of Antiochus IV, who we'll talk about in just a moment. As in other days, and even sometimes in modern days, there were treaties that were made and marriages that would be between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. And she was a Seleucid and was married into the Ptolemy or the Egyptian uh, portion of the Greek Empire. And uh, in the end, she would choose to be more loyal to the, 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 the Ptolemies in Egypt than her own family that she was brought up in. And so she is famous in history for those things. Now before we jump into the next section, and I'll let you take this, let you read this on your own, let you be encouraged of this on your own. But before we do jump into the next section, I want to pause. And I want us to consider the futility of the first 20 verses. They cover a span of hundreds of years. We read about them in a matter of five minutes. All the fightings, all the wars that are represented on this sheet, all the egos, all the the power, all the, the drama, and all for what? All for what? 
One commentator explains it best. He says this, On one level, it is the continual story of wars and rumors of wars as one human ruler and empire after another seeks to gain power by cunning or force. Yet though the tide in uh, the affairs of men comes in and it, it comes out, in the end, it accomplishes precisely nothing. Precisely nothing. The balance of power in earthly politics may shift, but it never comes to a permanent rest. On the one hand, therefore, Daniel 11 shows us the fallen world pursuing the wind and finding it elusive. What do power and politics gain for all of their toil? And since the commentator borrows from Ecclesiastes, let me also borrow from the great teacher of Ecclesiastes. There is nothing new under the sun. As we read of these world powers that would rise and fall and rise and fall, we can see in our own world how powers rise and powers fall. Rulers still vie for power. Rulers still vie for greatness. Just two years ago, Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine to try to recapture some of what used to be in the great USSR. Futile. Vain. Empty. These things are no different than the kings of the north battling it out with the kings of the south that we read of here in Daniel chapter 11. And so often Christians who who are exiles, correct? We are exiles in this world who, whose allegiance is primarily to a kingdom not of this world. Christians are caught in the middle. And they're caught amongst these things. Another commentator encourages us and says, we have to understand what massive comfort this view of history provides for the people of God. For how often God's people worldwide must feel that they're caught in the gears of vicious regimes and that the capitulant heavyweights of the age simply mash them at will. I want you to think about that again as I read that. How often God's people worldwide must feel that they're caught in the gears of vicious regimes and that the heavy heavyweights of the age simply mash them at will. We've had it very easy here in our lifetimes in the United States of America. But when we look at other nations and we think of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are caught between warring factions in Africa and in Asia and those who are in authoritarian systems like China or Russia or some of these other nations that we think about, we have to stop and realize the experiences that God's people are having in Daniel, the experiences that are being prophesied that they'll experience are the very same things that our brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe are experiencing in the present day. We tend to, as Americans, have very tunnel vision of the American life and our world, and we forget about the rest of the world. We forget about our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being mashed and who are caught between the cogs of these ruling factions. 
The commentator goes on and says, but our text teaches that our Lord brings judgment not only at the climax of history, but also, also within history as He injects futility into the designs of self-exalting, saint-ignoring rulers of the world so that their schemes end in shambles. Oh, what a great God we have. Not that He always does this, but the text by its repeated examples implies that this is His tendency that He does it far more often than we may be aware. How could God's people bear to live if He simply allowed the self-styled deities of the age to fulfill their plans? Asked the commentator. Alright, let's jump back into the text and let's talk about the little horn that is Antiochus. Verse 21 through 35. Verse 21 reads this, if you follow along. In His place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Guys, this describes so well the devious rise to power of Antiochus the fourth. We've already discussed him back in chapter 8, but we didn't really talk about how the throne wasn't truly his. It belonged to another member of the family, and through conniving and through some scheming and potential assassination, he was able to rise to power to be the king of the Seleucids. You might remember that the moniker Epiphanes was a moniker that he gave to himself, meaning the God-exalted one or God-revealed he lived as if he had divine control. His critics would often refer to him as Epimenes uh, instead of Epiphanes, which simply means a madman. Beginning in verse 22, his reign is described. Follow along with me if you would. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken. And even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. And he shall become strong with a small people. And without warning, he will come into the richest part of the providence. And he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done. Scattering among them plunder and spoil and goods, he shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. But only for a time. The prophecy speaks of Antiochus's deceitful ways. He would use money as a means of rewarding and manipulating people to punish people to gain control. And then in verse 25 through 31, we learn of his hostility toward the kings of the south. This is the Ptolemy Empire that would be there in Egypt. But, but when he is spurned by the kings of the south, along with the Romans who are in league with them, we read in verse 30 that he is afraid and he withdraws but that he takes out his rage, it says, against the Holy Covenant. It's like when somebody picks on you and they beat you, then you go find somebody you can beat. He's a bully. And he turns his attention towards the Holy Covenant. Notice verses 31 through 35. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. And he will seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. 
But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people will make many understand through some days. They shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. And when they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined and purified and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. There are two primary records of Antiochus's rage against Israel. The first act of rage would take place around 169 B.C. when Antiochus would pass through the area of Palestine on his way to Egypt, and he would put down a revolt that was inspired by Jason, who was the high priest who was set aside uh, because more money was offered to Antiochus. Jason would lead a revolt and Antiochus would slaughter many. As further punishment, he would take money from the temple, including the table for the bread of presents. He would take the cups for the drink offerings, the bowls, the golden censers, the curtain, the crowns, the gold decorations in front of the temple. He would plunder God's temple. Jason, who was the former high priest, he was selected by Antiochus to replace his brother, Ananias III. Three years later, he was replaced by Menelaus. This is what led Jason to revolt against Antiochus. Ananias would be assassinated. It's unsure if that was Antiochus's doing or his brother Jason's doing. We don't know how the powers were at play. But sometime after Antiochus would once again be humiliated in Egypt, his tail between his legs, he would take out his full rage. And the text says, on the holy covenant. Yahweh's people. He would put down another rebellion, but this time his goal was to abolish the Jewish religion altogether. We talked about this in brevity in a previous sermon because this is what was discussed in that other vision. But he would try to force the Greek religion on the Jewish people. This included turning the temple into a temple to Zeus. Building an altar to Zeus on the altar for burnt offering. He would even lead in sacrifices of unclean animals on that altar. This is what many have come to identify as the abomination of desolation. He would allow prostitution in the temple precinct, which was pretty common in Greek temples and Roman temples. He would abolish the practice of Sabbath and other sacred festivals, replace them with Greek-instituted, Hellenized celebrations. He even forbid the practice of circumcision, having infants checked and killing their parents if they would go through the practice of circumcision. This is a persecution we have not known. This is a persecution that some of our brothers and sisters around the world have known and have paid the price for. This section speaks of the great price that Israel would pay for resisting his rule. In this reign of terror, it seemed the only choice was to be a live pagan or a dead Israelite. Some chose to live as live pagans. They would adopt the Hellenization of the culture. The text speaks of those who would be foolish, who would fall for the tricks. But there was a man named Mattathias. Mattathias killed the first Jew who came to offer sacrifice 
on the altar to Zeus. Mattathias and his family would lead a revolt. You may not know him by his first name, but you will certainly recognize the family name of Maccabees. Mattathias Maccabees and his three sons, Judas, Jonathan, and Simeon, primarily led by Judas, would lead a deadly revolt that would in time lead to the reestablishment of the religious system in Jerusalem. The Maccabean rebellion. Maccabee means the hammerer. And they would hammer and hammer and hammer away at Antiochus and his armies for the next few years. In fact, three nights ago on December the 7th, the festival of Hanukkah began. It is an eight-day festival that celebrates the dedication of the temple after it had been cleansed and restored after the Maccabean revolt successfully pushed the Greeks out and they were able to come to peace again. That celebration will end on December 15th. But notice again the final phrase of verse 35. Until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. His days are numbered. Antiochus' days are numbered. But, but let's ask this question, why does Antiochus get so much airtime in this prophecy and in the previous prophecies? I believe because God is preparing His people. He is working to fortify His people for these difficult days that would lie ahead. God is reminding them that, that this too, this, this nefarious and detestable Antiochus will pass. His days are numbered. The date of his termination is established. I do a lot of driving on highways over the years. I grew up in Oklahoma, so I've spent a lot of my time over the years driving down I-44 uh, back to Oklahoma, back to my parents. We've gone on a lot of road trips. And one of the things that frustrates me that no doubt frustrates you is when you have two semi-trucks, one that's going 70 miles an hour and one that's going 69 and a half miles an hour, who are side by side for miles. And you can see it coming because there's, you know, 50 cars lined up behind them just waiting for that one to pass. And it's typically because one of those trucks is governed, right? There's a, there's a governor that says, hey, you cannot go beyond this mile per hour or this speed. Some of our truck drivers are like, yeah, I hate those trucks. Wish I could get in there and rip that out. It's a frustrating position to be in, to be governed. But that's the point that's being made here in the Antiochus section. Antiochus himself will not likely have a clue, but he will be functioning within the confines of God's appointed time. Even, even the insane intensity of history is under the control of a governor. We can look at the world in our present state and you can read about the fanatical authoritarians and the tyrannical leaders of our present day, of the past, and we can know with certainty because of experiences like Daniel that they, though they may seem out of control, are governed by a sovereign God 
who is omnipotent in his power and infinite in his power, and they are finite, and their days will come to an end. And we have to hold tightly to this as well. Because as I mentioned, there seems to be a bit of a wormhole in the passage located between verse 35 and 36. There's some that attempt to argue that 36 through 45 is a retailing of the saga of Antiochus, which to me seems a bit strange. But I believe this is a new king. I believe we do enter into a wormhole in 164 B.C. after the death of Antiochus here, but we exit sometime into the future, our future. The king that does as he wills in verse 36, I believe, to be the future Antichrist. Let's read about his religion beginning in verse 36. Notice what it says. And the king shall do all he wills. He shall exalt himself. He will magnify himself above every god. And he will speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. What is his religion? His religion is himself. It's self-deification. It's all about him being the supreme, the powerful one. Paul writes about this man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians. It'll be on the screen behind me. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness, he's not controlled by any laws. He is his own law is revealed. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. This is how Paul describes this coming one. This is how Daniel describes this coming one. In verse 40 through 44, we read of his dominance. Here's what it says in the text again. At the time of the end, the king of the south will attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through and he shall come into the glorious land that is Israel and tens of thousands will fall and these shall be delivered out of his hand Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites he shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape he shall become ruler of the treasures of the gold and the silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he will go out in great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. So I think you can see why some view this description to be Antiochus. The similarities are striking between what's being described here, between what's being described with Antiochus. And the reason for that is this, Antichrist will be antichristing. Whether we're talking about Antiochus who is an antichrist or some other domineering ruler who is an antichrist or the future coming antichrist. 
But Antiochus' loathsomeness will be no match for this coming king. He too will come to an end. He too will come to an end. Notice verse 45. He will pitch his palatial tent between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help. He will end up in the land between the Mediterranean and Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And there he will meet his appointed time. Revelation 16 says the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the king from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs for their demonic spirits performing signs and who go abroad in the kings and the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief, and blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go, out, or go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The valley of Megiddo sits between the holy mountain and the great sea. A few years ago, I stood on Mount Carmel and I had the opportunity to look out on Megiddo. I'm going to show you a picture that I took there. So this is your view from Mount Carmel looking out over the valley of Megiddo, looking back towards the holy mountain, Jerusalem. Behind us, as we view the picture, is the Mediterranean Sea. The Antichrist will pitch his palatial tent somewhere in this valley and will come to his end with no one to help. Why? Because he's just an earthly king. He is not the king of kings. His days are already numbered. I want to close with two verses from Ecclesiastes 3. Here's what the great teacher writes. He says, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. I want you to think about that for a moment. Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. That which is, it already has been. And that which is to be, it already has been. God seeks what has been driven away.
When we read of these incredible events, when we consider that Daniel is speaking of these things 400 years before they would come to fruition, those verses mean so much more to me. What God does cannot be changed. It cannot be thwarted. His plans are certain, they are solid. And there's nothing new. What the Israelites experienced, 164 under Antiochus, what we or future generations of Christians will experience with other antichrists or the antichrists who will ultimately come and be destroyed in the valley of Megiddo. It's nothing to God. His is the power. As we so often sing, I know how the story ends. And that's the beautiful thing about the prophecies of Daniel and the prophecies of Revelation. We needn't be crippled by fear. I know how the story ends. We will be with you again. And though the prophecy of, through the prophecy of Daniel, Yahweh is preparing His people for coming persecution. Yahweh is preparing us for coming persecution. Friends, I want you to, as is pointed out in our text today, stand firm. Stand firm. Yahweh's instruction to Israel through Daniel after sharing all of these things is stand firm. And I want to be standing right beside you, firmly, trusting in Christ. Exodus 14, 13. The children of Israel are between a great sea and a great army. And they're freaking out again. That would be me. Just saw everything they saw. Saw the incredible deliverance. All the plagues. All the power of Yahweh. Yet here's the army once again. And Moses says to the people, Fear not. Stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see Today, you shall never see again. And I say to you, whatever you face, whatever antichrist you face, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Because you may see them today, but there's coming a day where you will never see them again. Their days are numbered, they will come to an end. And we have a great God who is powerful, who is holy, and for some reason has chosen to show his love to us, who is gracious and merciful and will see us through whatever it is we may face in the coming days and years and decades. To him be glory. Would you bow with me?
Let me just ask you this question today. Where is your trust? We closed with that incredible song, that incredible invitation, only trust Him. Is your trust in Christ? Is your trust in the King of kings? His power, His grace, His salvation, or are you depending on your own strength? You may not be moving through significant persecution right now, but you may be in a trial and you're experiencing pain. Only trust Him. You may be here today and you're depending on your goodness. I'm a good person. I do what's right. And you're depending on that goodness to somehow restore your relationship with your Creator, to somehow be good enough to to usher you into the King of the the kingdom of the King of kings and Lord of lords, it is not enough because your righteousness, your goodness, our righteousness, our goodness is nothing but dirty rags. We need the righteousness of Christ. Only trust Him. I want to give you an opportunity to respond. I want to give you an opportunity to pray. If you need to pray with somebody, if you have questions or you're just... Just in need of some encouragement, I want to invite you to the prayer room that's here to my right. Somebody would love to pray with you, love to answer your questions, love to encourage you from God's Word. But if you need to deal with the Lord in any other way, if you need to reestablish your trust, confess sin, I want you to take care of that in the time that we have right here, right now. Let me give us some silence for just a moment before I close this in prayer. Father, I try to put myself in the position of the Jews and their persecution, your people, the abomination of desolation, everything that they endured under Antiochus. We sang that song that so relates well. I heard the bells on Christmas Day and sometimes in life and in these situations, God, it's just... It's hard to see, it's hard to grasp that you have a plan, that you're still good. Yet you are the one consistent thing that moves through the pages of Scripture. As kingdoms rise and fall, generations come and go. It's your drumbeat, it's your plan, it's your work, and it's all for your glory. And so God, for my friends here today who are experiencing pain and persecution, I pray that you would just move them to deeper trust. That Daniel 11, as we look at it, would be a faith-building vision that shows, yes, you are working your plan for the good of your people and for your own glory. What a beautiful thing. Thank you that we can study. Thank you that we can understand. Give us greater understanding. Take us deeper. Build our faith stronger, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One more truth uh, before Dustin comes today.
Uh, we never know. And we all know this. We never know when pain is just around the corner. And we never know when persecution is just around the corner. We're promised that we know it will come uh, just as, as the, the Israelites knew that there would be some figure who would come and violate them and rob them and persecute them. But they didn't know when. So Paul gives us this helpful advice that we looked at last week. I want to repeat it. Here's what Paul says. He says, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Every day, prepare yourself. Every day, prepare yourself by taking up the armor, remembering, relishing in, rejoicing in the gospel of Jesus Christ and be ready to stand firm. Prepare yourself. Let's, let's prepare one another. Let's be there for each other as followers of Jesus when those fiery darts start coming.